And now from the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. CNN's John Miller has spent his life toggling between television journalism, law enforcement, and the intelligence community. He's covered some of the biggest national security and crime stories of the past four decades, including a rare interview with Osama bin Laden three years before bin Laden unleashed the gruesome terrorist attack on the World Trade Center. Between stints in journalism, Miller also has served at the highest levels of the FBI, the nation's two largest police departments, and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. He's a master storyteller, but as you'll hear, he's also a hell of a story in his own right. John Miller, what a pleasure to sit down with you. You know, I'm an old ink-stained wretch myself, having grown up in the newsroom of the Chicago Tribune in a very colorful time. And so um, you're a great journalist. You've you've covered a lot of great stories, but you are a great story, and I wanted to talk to you about both. So okay. thank you. <laughs> thank, thank you for being here. I want you to identify these names for me. Who are Antonio from Rome, Pierre from Paris, Nigel from London? Who who are these people? Uh, they are one person um, who uh, is also named John Miller, but also named John Rellum, which was Miller spelled backwards. <laughs> and that was my father who wrote seven weekly columns under six different names, one of them being his own. Uh-huh. And uh, these were for, in the, for the New York mostly tabloids? or It was for the New York Enquirer, which would go on to become the National Enquirer. But, but, that, but then it was, a, it was a New York weekly paper, and he wrote kind of the Broadway gossip as his main dish. Um, but he was somebody from Hollywood and somebody from London and somebody from Paris. Um, and he would just, you know— there was this frenetic little office with him and a secretary, and the items and the calls would come in, and they would go on different spikes. You know, this is Europe, this is London, <laughs> this is Hollywood, this is Broadway. Um, and, I mean, that's how he stayed organized as to which column the stuff went into. The more interesting dynamic of his nom de plumes was – the good items, the juicy stuff, went into John J. Miller. Um, the items he was a little shaky about went into John Rellum, which was Miller <laughs> spelled backwards on the idea of, well, if it bounces back, it's not on, it's not on me. But he was also a guy who uh, was loath to make a correction. So if Miller got something wrong, Rellum would point it out in his column. <laughs> My esteemed colleague blew it again last week. And then Miller would do the same for Rellum, who was higher risk because he got the second string items. And soon there was a full tilt column war going on in the paper between them calling each other names. I don't think anybody ever caught on to the idea that they were all the same guy. And this is how – this is what the environment in which you grew up. Well, it was – a fascinating childhood because you had a father who had a 24-7 job, you know, and the 24-7 part of it meant, you know, going to the Copacabana and the El Morocco and all the clubs in New York where every hat check girl and, you know, every mater d' and every captain, um, you know, had a tip for him about who had just come in with whom or who had just got thrown he out of He probably had a tip for them too. Oh, yes. It was definitely a two-way street. Um, and this was an all-cash operation. So, you know, that meant sleeping late into the day. Uh, but he was also a guy who wanted to spend time with his children. So, you know, he would pack me and my sister Greg into the car and we would go off. And, you know, it might be on a school night, like opening night at the Copa, Frank Sinatra or Sammy Davis, Bobby Darren, up to the dressing room, autograph pictures, the selfie would not be invented for yes. generations. Yet. Too bad, yeah. And then, you know, rush us back home, put us to bed. Then he would go back for the late show to collect more items and stories. I mean, how did that impact on you? Well, I mean, <laughs> I think it got me addicted um, as a boy to expecting to have a front row seat. 
you know, you'd be on the scene when it was happening. You would Did be it bother front. you that there were dead people there? Um, they never said anything about <laughs> it. Yeah. But uh, but it's an interesting question because, you know, I saw things that a normal kid wouldn't see. Um, but, you know. It was just normal. It, it was, normal it was taken in in a clinical way. And at some point, you know, around the age of 12, I realized I was seeing, but I wasn't collecting. So I started taking pictures. And now I'm riding around with my dad. I'm taking the pictures. He's driving me to the Daily News and to the New York Post and to the New York Times and to the AP. So he was freelancing these stories. That's right. And I realized something, which was they don't care if you're 12 years old if you have the shot. Mm -hmm. It was the great equalizer. It allowed me to kind of become a news guy in the ninth grade. Is it true that your godfather was Frank Costello? So technically— And we should point out Frank Costello was the boss of the the Luciano crime family here in New York. Right, but he was also the boss of all bosses because he was the— the chairperson of the mob's ruling commission. So, Although I think a year before you were born, he was the subject of a— Of a mob hit. Of attempt. a mob hit that went bad, yeah. Right. He was, and he was having dinner with my dad that night in Monsignor, the French restaurant, uh-huh. with, with my mom. You know, my father left, and Costello got in a cab, and when he got out at his apartment building— Vincent the Chin Gigante, yes. who was kind of a button man at the time, who had gotten the contract to take out this hit on the boss, who would later, in his own right, become, become the, the boss, boss. Yeah. of the Genovese crime family. And then feign senility for 30 years to try and— uh... Highly effectively, you know, with <laughs> yeah. multiple, not only defense, but government psychiatrists saying nobody could fake— insanity this well this long. Well, he was a professional boxer, so he, he, he may have had some of those uh, symptoms. But, you know, this was kind of the strange mix of my father's world because being a Broadway gossip columnist and moving through the nightlife meant brushing elbows with celebrities, club and restaurant owners. There was the necessary injection of the requisite mobsters because they moved in and out of the same circles. Um, cops, robbers, and it was a really interesting education because you lived normal life. You got up, you had breakfast, you know, you rode your bicycle to school, you went through the, you know, the third and fourth grade, then you had your other life living in dad's world, then you went back to normal life playing with your friends, and like, What'd you do last night? I'm like, I went to a homicide in the in Midtown and, you know, then a fire in the Bronx. And then, you know, uh, we had dinner at this place and saw this famous person. And, you know, people would look at you like, you're a weird kid. <laughs> do you uh, – so you mentioned uh, you, when you were 14, you got a job at WNEW-TV in, in, uh, in New York. Yeah. First of all, how does a ninth grader find the time to do that? And what what did you do? So I'm not sure they knew that I was 14. They knew I was some kid, and they hired me to work after school. So I would take the 2.30 bus, um, skip seventh period, which was gym, so I don't know if they cared, and then uh, get to Channel 5. I'd work from 3 to 11, so when the 10 o'clock news went off at 11 – I'd catch the 11.30 bus, which was a real race to get to, you know, the bus in time, and then go to school again. But my job was to answer the phone, listen to the police radio, and get coffee or whatever they told me to do. But I was really good at listening to the police radio because I had had years of training just riding around in my father's call knowing that's a good call. Mm-hmm. It was a small staff. It wasn't like NBC or CBS. You know, they said at Channel 5 News, when the shot called for aerials, we stood on a chair. Um, <laughs> we were a low-budget operation but very scrappy and uh-huh. always first on the scene by hook or by crook. So when they ran out of reporters at night, they would send a camera crew, but they needed a microphone holder. So they say, kid, go with the crew. Go to this thing. If anybody's talking, make sure we get it. So... I became the de facto night reporter, which then caused these worlds to mix 
and sometimes crash. One night there was a bombing in Queens, an explosion, and we got to the scene and it was in a cemetery and it was a mausoleum and the smoke was still coming out of the tomb. And I looked up and the name on the, on the mausoleum was Costello. And I'm like, is this Frank Costello, the gangster's tomb? And they're like, yeah, somebody just blew it up. And, you know, the cell phone had not been invented. So literally on the way back with the film, I stopped at a payphone and called my dad and said, hey, somebody blew up Uncle Frank's tomb. What does it mean? You know, they can't kill him twice. And he said, it's a signal. It means look for who just got out of jail. Somebody's just come back on the scene. And this is their message that all bets are off. They're taking over the family. So that's what I went on with that night, quoting a source. So you, what, you actually did things on the air? Oh, yeah. By the time I was 16, I was a full-time reporter and, you know, covering the night side in New York. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history. I spent several years on nights in Chicago. And it was, the, I mean, uh, it was the greatest education I ever had. You learned about a city in a whole different way. No, it's true, because at night, you get a little bit of everything, but without the bureaucracy. Yes. But what did you do about your education, or was that your education? Did you end up going to college? I graduated high school at 17. I was a street reporter. You know, at 18, I was, you know, working full-time as a reporter on the streets of New York, which is the number one television news market yeah. in the country. But my boss said, you should go to college. And I'm like, everybody who's in college wants to do what I'm doing right now. And he said, mm, this job will be here when you get back. But, you know, you need to round yourself out. Um, you need to have the experience of going to college. You need to feel like a kid again. Um, you know, you need to live in a dorm and get drunk with the boys and do all that college stuff. Um so uh, I applied to a bunch of colleges. I got rejected by a lot of them. But one of them, Emerson in Boston. Yeah. Great communication Yeah, they school. have a great, yeah. You know, I had, a, I had a letter, you know, from the head of Metro Media Television. And clips. Um, I submitted everything. And I, I got in and uh, took out student loans and all that. So I would go to college, taking Communications 101, fly back to New York on the <laughs> Boston shuttle, which was 40 bucks uh -huh. in 1978, do the weekend news both nights, get paid for that, then fly back to college and go back to school. And it was like over Christmas break, my roommate, Gary Saperstein, said, I think I saw you on the news this weekend <laughs> when I went home. And I'm like, maybe. <laughs> So it kind of kind of blew my cover because I was trying to be the normal college kid to round my life out. Um, but, you know, after a year of that, I literally ran out of money because I was making just enough to get by but not enough to qualify for financial aid. Um, so I said, well, I'll get back to this later and never really got back to it. You ended up uh, full-time at your – at your station, and then you moved over to the NBC station, which I must—I'm sure I was watching when I was a, a kid in New York. But, and I, I'm sure I saw you, uh, and I vaguely remember this. But you sort of made your name uh, with a kind of ambush interview of John Gotti, yeah. who, who was the Dapper Don. Uh, sort of the most charismatic of the mob figures. Uh, talk about how that happened and how your relationship with Gotti unfolded. Well, Gotti burst onto the scene like a comet. You know, he didn't just slowly appear. He went from being nobody, uh, a captain in a crime family in a you know place in Ozone Park, Queens, to suddenly being this mythic figure overnight, and literally overnight, December 16th, 1985, um, with the assassination, the mob hit of Big Paul Castellano, the boss of the Gambino crime family, the head of the mob's commission um, in midtown Manhattan as Christmas music blared from speakers and, and you know, people were passing with their shopping and, and everything, uh, 
multiple gunmen shot him and his bodyguard as they got out of a car in front of Spark Steakhouse um, and then fled into the night. And I got to the scene very quickly because NBC was in Rockefeller right, Plaza, yeah. so it was a few blocks away, and I did this live shot. Um, you were looking at the body of Big Paul Castellano, the boss of all bosses of organized crime, and this murder signals not just a mob hit in midtown Manhattan in front of dozens of witnesses, but it signals um, something that is going to change the face of organized crime. A murder like this would have to be authorized by the mob's commission, which he headed, or it has to be a renegade move, which could signal war. And I finished the live shot and uh, walked off, and a guy took me by the elbow. Interestingly, it was the a chief in the NYPD's intelligence division, um, ironically, which I would later head. Yes. And he said, Gaddy. He didn't even pronounce the name right. <laughs> he said, the guy's name is Gaddy, John Gaddy. He's behind all this. And had you ever heard of Gaddy before? No. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I could have, would have, should have, because I knew my mobsters um, in more ways than one. And uh, the next morning, I was in front of Gaddy's clubhouse. And then, you know, we just kind of stalked him around. It always ended up with his bodyguards, you know, kind of pushing the cameraman. And we all ended up, you know, rolling around on the ground. And then Gotti was gone. We never quite got the shot. So one night, I just showed up with five camera crews. And we surrounded him. It was more people than they could block the cameras of or push around. We walked The advantage of working at a larger station. And, you know, at the end of it, when we had enough, because I could see Gotti was getting angry. <laughs> You know, I walked off with him and told the camera crews, okay, go back to your cars. We're good. And he said, what was that all about? I said, well, your people always push my people. He said, we always treated you like a gentleman. I'm like, that's not treating people like a gentleman, (laughs) knocking people down. Well, maybe he meant not killing them. (laughs) Yeah, I think that might have been it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And he said, well, I tell you what, none of my people will ever bother your people again, but don't ever do this again. You want to ask me a question? Just ask it. The result of that was that after that, I had this odd license to walk up to him, ask him two or three questions. He would give two or three quips, usually non-answer answers. Mm -hmm. Um, But that video appeared early and often on NBC, and it kind of created the – you know, because people just kept seeing me and John Gotti walking around talking that that's what we did. We just walked around chatting all day. You also – played a big role in the end of the Gotti story because you broke the story about Gotti bribing a juror in a in in, in one of his trials. So talk about that and that must have put a crimp in your relationship. You know, Gotti was very interesting about his ego, about his sensitivities. You could go on the air and say, John Gotti, the feared boss of the Gambino family, is a, you know, uh, suspected to control unions and uh, entities and companies and you know, has killed you know, dozens of people. Like, he wouldn't mind that at all because that made him you know, that powerful, mm-hmm. feared guy. Um, things he didn't like were you know, talking about, uh, about uh, drug dealing which his family was involved with, um, his brothers, um, and, you know, other things. So I broke the story of Sammy Gravano, his underboss, you know. Sammy uh, the Bull Gravano. Right. Turning state's evidence um, about the juror and the detective, um, you know, who who had sold the names of the jurors and allowed them to target them for bribery. Uh, But I think, you know, at that point, he was looking at, am I going to beat this case or am I going away for life? So whatever minor annoyances um, I brought on were probably the least of his problems. So he didn't blame you. He, he, he knew that he was going to get whacked by the government whether you reported the story or not. Pretty much. And I mean, Gotti was cordial to me in our in-person counters. But, you know, I also listened to the tapes and heard the way he talked about people, including me. Um, and you know, Let me ask you, did you ever worry about the stuff? You, I mean, did you ever worry? I mean, did it ever occur to you that maybe I better watch my back here? You know, I think I knew my way around the subject matter and the parameters of it. The mob wasn't supposed to cross that line and kill a reporter, but 
I don't know if there really are rules on that side of the track, but that Mm -hmm. was the unspoken rule. On the other hand, to be realistic about it, I was licensed to carry firearms. I had received multiple threats from multiple other stories, including drug cartels and, and things like that. But I kind of counted on the idea of it's not going to be John Gotti. It's going to be some young, up-and-coming wise guy who wants to impress his boss by saying, like, I, you know, Mm -hmm. beat this guy up or I broke his legs or I did something. So, you know, it was calculated risk. In the uh, early to mid-90s, you crossed over. You went, as reporters would say, over to the dark side. (laughs) You You went into government and you went to work at the the New York City Police Department for Bill Bratton, who was a who became a legendary uh, police chief uh, here and in, in L.A. You'd work for him later in L.A. What uh, what provoked you to make that shift? Interesting question. But if you've spent your whole life kind of on one side of the yellow tape, looking over at the crime scene, you always wonder. All those people on the other side of the yellow tape, they know everything. They've got all the facts. They're going to give you what they want to give you. They're going to hold back what they're going to want to hold back. Um, I always enjoyed, you know, the level of sources where I usually pretty much knew what they knew. So you always wonder, like, what would it be like to be on the other side? And when Bill Bratton, who basically changed the entire culture of American policing and um, for a time ended crime as we knew it, in New York, um, you know, we knew 6.9 murders a day, 100,000 robberies, 5,000 shootings. He brought that down to 300 murders a year, not right. even one a day, right. you know, you know, under 1,000 shootings in a city of 8.6 million, um, 20,000. He really changed the city. But he said he was going to do that. And he had a brilliant strategist, Jack Maple, who was coming with him. And Maple said to me one night in Elaine's restaurant, you know, we need to get somebody to do the to be the deputy commissioner for media relations, the DCPI. Um, you know, who knows the police department well enough, but knows the press well enough to get you know our message out, because we're going to shake things up. And I said, me. And he said, ah, you can't afford it. You're in your TV job. You're making money. Blah blah blah. And I said, listen, I'm in for the adventure. You know, let's do it. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition, wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. You know, once I went to work for Bratton, um, he said, uh, you know, we can't just turn the city upside down to do what we need to do to cut crime. We need to tell people, this is what we're going to do. Then we need to tell them, we're doing it. Then we need to, t- to tell them we did it and this is how it's working. We're going to need real, you know, end-to-end communications. Can you do that? I'm like, got it. 
you just know a hell of a lot more when you're on the inside, and some of it you just can't share. And some of it may be disadvantageous to your boss. So, I mean, police departments, no matter how well they're run, don't always run perfectly. There are mistakes. How did you reconcile that? Well, it was a shock to the system. You spend, you know, 20 years of your life as a reporter, you know, from the time you're in the ninth grade till you're, you know, 30-something years old, um, trying to figure out, like, how do I find out all those secrets? And then how do I get them on the air? Then your first day as deputy police commissioner, you walk in and you look on your desk and there's the overnight reports and the forward-looking reports and the confidential sheets and everything. You go through it and you're like, oh, my God. This is just like an encyclopedia of incredibly great stories. And then your second thought is, what if it gets out? Yes, yeah. (laughs) So your life's upside down. Well, before I leave New York, Giuliani, he was mayor at the time that you were in your first stint. Yes, Uh, it was early Giuliani. Yeah, well, talk about that. Talk about the Giuliani that you knew then. And you probably had interactions with him in the 80s when he was the U.S. attorney because he made going after the mob his signature issue. What? Talk about the Giuliani then and the Giuliani now. So the Giuliani, the Giuliani I knew as the U.S. attorney was like Thomas Dewey. You know, he was the mob-busting prosecutor who was going to come through New York and clean it up. And, you know, he went after the mob with the commission case and, you know, the next case and the next case. And he was dismantling organized crime's hold on New York City by these sweeping prosecutions. He was very focused on cleaning up New York and using the power of a federal prosecutor to do it. But, John, you look look at him now. Well, and then he was mayor. Yeah. And when he was mayor, um, I saw a very different side of him. And that's where, you know, listen, you can't be in these jobs, um, whether it's U.S. attorney or mayor, without having a certain amount of ego. And it's, it's it's a necessary evil. Um, it helps well, and in that. New York, you know, the mayor is such a larger-than-life uh, profile that you're, you know, you're in people's living rooms every day. You're a character in a drama. You know, the mayor of New York is a national figure, a more than a local figure. But with uh, with Giuliani, I mean, the clashes with Bratton started right away, and it was strange to me because, you know. I was new to being in government. I'd come out of years as a reporter. But, you know, the whole idea of you've got this police commissioner who is cutting crime to levels it's never been cut before. So, you know, why are you mad at him? And it turned out that he was mad at him because he was getting credit for it. Mm -hmm. And Giuliani felt not heaping enough of that credit on the mayor. And, I mean, from Bratton's standpoint— he was new to this level of politics also. He was a guy from, from Boston. Boston. Yeah. Um, but from Bratton's standpoint, you know, the mayor didn't come up with any of these ideas. You know, the mayor didn't invent Comstat or any of these mm-hmm. crime-fighting systems. You know, the mayor wasn't there for that. So he enjoyed getting the credit. Yeah. And as Jack Maple used you to say— You probably helped him get some in the well, time you were there. So that was a problem for me. I became a lightning rod in that discussion because, you know, they said, why is Bratton getting such great press and it's not all reflecting on you? Mm-hmm. And Giuliani said, well, he's got this media guy who, mm-hmm. like, you know, moves the levers and gets all this great press for him. And, like, he's not getting it for us. So, you know, first I had to go. Is that why you left? Because you left after just a year and you went back to ABC News. That's right. I left after a year because, you know, Giuliani said, we're going to get rid of your entire staff at police headquarters. We're going to put in people from City Hall. They're going to do this. And they were going to politicize the operation. But when you look at him now, disgraced, indicted, bankrupt, you know, kind of a pathetic and in some ways, malign figure. I mean, what happened to him? I think what happened to him was, and I consider it a Greek tragedy, a meteoric rise, and a terribly public um, and self-inflicted fall. But I think what happened to him was, there are people, take Donald Trump as one of them, who are addicted to attention, and the spotlight like crack. You know, I mean, it's not just that they enjoy it. 
They can't do without it. And in Giuliani's case, you know, he went through his terms as mayor, um, and then he wasn't terribly popular at the end of his second term. But 9-11 happened, and overnight, partly because he was the guy in place and partly because from a leadership standpoint, he did a great job mm -hmm. of getting New York through 9-11 uh, he went from being a mildly unpopular mayor who was on his way yeah. out to being America's mayor and the symbol of leadership. Well, that took care of the need for attention. But eventually, over years, the speeches and the invitations and being knighted by the queen and all that stuff, you know, runs out. People move on. And, you know, he was becoming more of an obscure figure. Yes, and along comes Donald Trump. And, you know, Rudy Giuliani finds Donald Trump and says, you know, I can get the spotlight from the, whatever, whatever light is off cast by him if I connect with him. And, you know, I'm part of that. I can be the voice. I can be the face. I can be the fighter. I can be the lawyer. Um, and, you know, all of that he, drew him He didn't him have in, I can be the fall guy on the list. Like a moth to a flame. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the rest, as they mm -hmm. say, really is history. I you mean, you, you mentioned 9-11. When you went over to ABC News, I think the most famous story you did in that stint of your career was to a television interview with Osama bin Laden. And you did it in 1998. You did it before uh, the embassy bombings and obviously before 9-11. Tell me about how that came about. When I interviewed bin Laden and he declared war in America and he said this war is going to start soon and he said this is a, a religious decree, a fatwa, and he said the words, uh, this is not a, a war just against those in the military uniform. Civilians are a target in this fatwa also. Um, within seven weeks, he had bombed two United States embassies, killed 226 people injured 1,400 more, and the proximity between his declaration of war and his striking the United States overseas um, elevated that interview to a real attention-getter because you could have stopped 100 people before the embassy bombings, before the coal bombing, before 9-11 and said, who's Osama bin Laden? And 98 of them wouldn't have known. Yeah. So this was, his, this was his real introduction to an American audience. Um, that was that was my end of the plan because I knew from sources he was about to be indicted for the bombing of the World Trade Center. In 93. In 1993, which I had covered as a reporter. Mm -hmm. What bin Laden knew, which I didn't know, was he was ready to blow up the two embassies and he wanted his declaration of war out there ahead yeah. of it. So there well, was and no that confusion. raises the question because I know you've gotten some criticism for this. There were certain ground rules to this interview, which took six months for you to arrange through an intermediary. You had to submit your questions in advance and he did not allow tra uh, spontaneous translation. So you didn't quite know what he was saying until your, your translator could tell you after the fact. So... The, the criticism is that you basically just gave him a platform to make a declaration. From a journalistic standpoint, what do you say to that? Well, first thing I say is that criticism comes from a bunch of people who I didn't see anywhere in Afghanistan no, gotcha, or gotcha, in that cave. Gotcha, yeah. You know, so it's easy for these guys who are bloggers and all that to get on their high journalistic horse. But if you get down to the purity of it, what is good journalism? Did America know about the most significant non-state actor who was a threat to us as far as terrorism uh, before that interview? Not really. Um, did they need to know that he was suspected of blowing up the World Trade Center in New York City, financing that, trying to blow up a dozen airliners over Pacific routes, paying for that plot, um, uh, financing the plot to kill the Pope in Manila? I mean, these are startling stunning things. And these were all part of your And these reporting. were all questions that we asked him. As far as supplying the questions, this became kind of an academic thing, which is, you know, generally you don't supply questions right. before. I don't know what you're going to ask me in this interview right? Um, till, we, till we sit down and I hear them. But in that case, they said, 
we need the questions so our translator can translate them. Mm Because, you know, the words they use was, this is not the United Nations, where Mm -hmm. we have some translator who does this on the fly. Mm -hmm. So if you want your questions to be answered, you know, they should be translated precisely. So I didn't have questions. I was just going to do an interview. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I scribbled out 16 questions. Did you bomb the World Trade Center in 1993? Did you pay for the plot to blow up the airplanes? What did he say when you asked him then Um, about bombing the World Trade Center? He said, you know, that this was the work of Ramzi Youssef, and he is a great hero um, to everyone. And um, Yeah, who was trained by al-Qaeda. Right. Uh, Tellingly, he said, I did not know him before the bombing of the World Trade Center, Mm -hmm. which is not saying I didn't know him because he was arrested in one of bin Laden's guest house. But supplying the questions was to get them translated. The fact that they wouldn't translate his answers was something they told me when we sat down. Mm-hmm. But I knew his answers were long, and I knew they were complicated. And at the end of the day, um, platform or no platform, every word he said um, in that interview was news. I have two questions about this. One is you interviewed him in his hiding place in his lair, and it was a very uh, kind of circuitous route to get there. Any fear at all of going there? That's the first. And the second is you've said that bin Laden, you were surprised by his by his demeanor and his presence. Well, first, we knew it was a dangerous trip. Um, we knew that others had tried to get this interview, and when confronted with what it would take to get there and the level of control they'd have to give up um, at their own personal risk, um, had decided not to go forward with talking about it anymore. I had a specific goal, which was to ask him before he was charged in the World Trade Center case, was this you? Um, and I thought it was worth the risk because we had a very good fixer on the ground We had a very good contact as an intermediary. And the fact that when we met there, they wanted to know, well, what will this be on? How many people will see it? You know, they knew it was the American broadcasting company. He wanted you to come back with this story. Yeah. So that was part of the consideration, which is there's the danger. You could end up being kidnapped. You could end up being beheaded. You could end up a lot of things. But it seems that they had something to say. And if they had something to say, uh, hopefully it was the answer to my question, but whatever else it was, it was going to be interesting, and it was. So, you know, we kind of rolled the dice with it. Bad things happened. We came under gunfire at a checkpoint, you know, uh, on the way to to see him. We were stopped by different Taliban people, and, you know, there was all kinds of threats to take our gear and our trucks, and, you know, these were resolved with bakshish. You know, was the the word, you know, bribery, bribery. Uh, But we got in and we got out and we got what I thought was one of the most important stories of the decade because for me it starts as a crime story. There's a bombing in the World Mm -hmm. Trade Center in 1993. I'm standing in the hole with the detectives saying, what could have caused this? And they're like, this is a truck bomb. Nothing else could have caused this. It's not a gas explosion. Mm it's not often in your life that your crime story leads to a war mm-hmm. or two. In your book, The Cell Inside the uh, 9-11 Plot and Why the FBI and CIA Failed to Stop It, why didn't uh, – now, Bill Clinton tried to nail bin Laden and just missed, but why was so much missed? There was apparently a lot of intelligence, some in the light of day like your own work. What what happened that was such an intense that created such an intense failure to kill Bin Laden before nine eleven or to miss nine eleven? Well, both. So the problem with taking out Bin Laden in the Clinton administration and later in other administrations was, you know, there was uh, there was an intelligence requirement, which is not where's Bin Laden right now, but where's Bin Laden going to be in right. you know. 12 hours from now because, you know, you had to use missiles from, you know, ships offshore. You Mm. needed precise guidance. You needed time to set all that up. And there were numerous times where people could tell you where bin Laden was right now and what the collateral damage to other civilians, uh, children. Um, The 9-11 intelligence failure was 
simply, you know, the 9-11 Commission put it best as a, a failure of imagination, but it was more than a failure of imagination. You know, the NSA was Agency collecting... Agency rivalries, wasn't that one part That's of it? right. You know, the NSA was collecting pieces of audio that had extraordinary significance. The CIA had other indicators and information about meetings that were happening. The FBI had the suspects in the Cole case who had crossover and communications with the 9-11 people. And everybody was very concerned about, you know, their information not getting out. So they only shared, you know, slivers and fragments. And at the end of the day, nobody had the full picture. If they had put all of the marbles on the table and somebody had arranged them to connect the dots, to use that cliche, they might have stopped 9-11. Or they might not. It depends how complete the picture would have been. But they certainly missed the chance. You were back at ABC. You were on the desk when 9-11 went down with Peter Jennings. Did you know instantly? I know you said on the air you were suggestive, but you were, I think, appropriately I was cautious. A, I, was, I was afraid to say it was bin Laden, even though it seemed obvious, because you know those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. And I had watched CNN. Um, and other networks when the Oklahoma City bombing happened. Mm -hmm. And credible counterterrorism experts went on and said, this has all the earmarks of international terrorism. This is most likely pulled off by Hezbollah. And, you know, people were talking about attacking Muslims in the street. And it turned out to be, you know... Domestic terrorism, yeah. Yeah, a couple of, you know, an ex-army guy and his, and his friend, mm -hmm. you know, with a weird agenda, all domestic. So... I wanted to make sure that there was some actual intelligence behind it. My discussions on the air that morning before before we were pretty certain it was bin Laden and al-Qaeda was uh, to actually approach it like an intelligence professional, which is interesting because I wasn't one yet. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now, back to the show. You went back inside. Bratton had moved to L.A. You took over counterterrorism and intelligence there. There were clashes over you hardened, you, you know, you were successful in hardening targets and in improving communications, intelligence communications. But civil, civil libertarians were unhappy about the aggressiveness of intelligence gathering and sharing. And that's something that persisted when you, you, you ultimately went on to the FBI. There were people who were uncomfortable about you becoming a deputy director at the FBI because of this. Talk about that tension between civil liberties and safety. Well, first, let's give the civil libertarians their due. The things that happened after 9-11, whether it was um, people being spirited off to black sites without access to lawyers, being held without charges, um, things at Guantanamo, enhanced interrogation techniques. I mean, there's a lot that the American public saw later um, that, you know, and I think the American public has kind of spoken on. I get it. It was after 9-11. We were all afraid the next big attack was coming, but that's not really us as a people. Um, so the civil libertarians, you know, were there and they were doing their job by raising all those questions loudly and long. On the other hand, there's the other end of that pendulum swing, which is, you know, when you pin the civil libertarians down um, after they do their job exactly as they are, you know, sworn to do and say, well, what would you have us do? They end up struggling because where they're at is – we don't want you looking at anybody who you can't prove a crime against, you know, or that you don't know is about to do something because that's their privacy. 
But what the American people said, um, who are not a special interest group, there are 380 million Americans who said, never again, to borrow a phrase. Mm -hmm. We don't want another 3,000 people killed. We don't, not, we don't want another attack. We don't want more terrorism. So your job is not to solve terrorism as the FBI or the intelligence community. Your first job is to stop it from happening. Your second job is to catch people if you can. Well, that was a paradigm shift. And you can't do that with the, with the civil libertarians' requirement of wait for something to happen and then go prove it in court. So you had to find this middle ground of how to sometimes be intrusive in intelligence investigations and to do it in such a way that it was bound by rules and laws that said you can do these things, but you can't do those things. Let me ask you just today, where we are today, how concerned are you about a revival of terrorist threats that are generated overseas because of the war in the Middle East? And how prepared are we for that? Well, in order, first, David, we are in a perfect storm. We have um, a war going on between Israel and Hamas. We have, you know, terrible images of brutality um, on both sides coming back and forth. We have those being turned around and turned into highly effective and graphic propaganda by terrorist groups that were that had lost their raison d'etre, that had become uh, somewhat irrelevant, whether it's ISIS or Al Qaeda um, and others. You have Hezbollah, which is not just an organization of 20 to 30,000 people funded and largely controlled by Iran, but also an internationally positioned terrorist organization in its own right. And then you have foreign powers like Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, mm -hmm. literally stirring the pot domestically on our own internet with bots and trolls and fake Facebook pages and messaging um, where they're not necessarily making up anything that isn't true. But they're, they're trying just, to inflame people. They're trying to inflame people going into an election year purposefully. Um, and you have all that happening at once. Uh, so you've got the threat of domestic violent extremists on both sides, left and right. You have the international terrorism that comes directly out of the war and the ones ancillary to the war that have been re-stirred and remade relevant uh, because they can use uh, the Palestinian people as you know uh, as a as a a lightning rod for messaging. So yeah, we're at a we are back to a lights blinking red place again. And lights blinking red not just because of what you're implying is blinking lights not just because of the threat from abroad but blinking lights because of the threat of domestic terrorism and political violence. Right. Where politics and violent extremism or terrorism cross paths and then mix is right here when you come to domestic extremism. And it's, uh, it is a time where you have to kind of be careful of being able to recognize things because you say, well, you know, how many terrorist attacks, you know, like 9-11 have right-wing extremists done or plots and then you have to kind of break it down, which is okay. Um, every active shooter who goes into a place where they're a teenager or whether they're mm -hmm. a you know, middle-aged male that says, I'm doing this, you know, to kill immigrants. Is that a result of this kind of propaganda and stirring in the social media that these loners and lost people live in before they turn. I'd say clearly yes in many cases. I would say clearly yes because yes. when you go through their computers, what do you find? Right. When you have a teenage boy who lives 200 miles from Buffalo but drives there because his research showed that that will be the largest concentration of African Americans in a busy place and he goes into a supermarket and tries to kill – Every African-American he can see skipping over the occasional white person um, and then says one of his mission vows is to live so that his story can be told. Uh, is, that, is, that, is that terrorism? I would say yes. Mm -hmm. You've spoken recently about your concern about the threat to judges 
and the uptick in that. How much of this is associated with Trump and his own problems and his vilification of the FBI, of the courts, and so on? You know, there's a there's a recent a recent survey, literally a couple of weeks ago, with the Washington Post and a partner that said 85% of Americans believe that the FBI had a part in setting up January 6th, the assault on the Capitol. So if that doesn't tell you the effect of kind of the repetitive propaganda of government conspiracies and deep state plants, plots and plans, you know, nothing else does. Yeah, well, but, the same, same, by the way, is true of the uh, pervasive belief, at least among Republicans, that the last election was somehow corrupt probably the most scrutinized election in American history. Right. And I mean, when you consider that, I mean, the core of your question was how much of this has to do with Donald Trump. When you go on the real Donald Trump or when you go on the the message board on Discord, um, Mm -hmm. you know, when you go on the places where Trump supporters gather together, Mm -hmm. um, that's where, I mean, on the first day of the first days after the indictment by the Manhattan district attorney and, you know, his arraignment in that court, I went on those sites, which are specifically for Trump supporters. Um, and by the way, this doesn't mean that all Trump supporters of are course, there. Yeah. But there's a virulent strain of people who just went on this this kind of endless stack of threats. We should block the bridges and tunnels and, you know, we should come with guns. We should assault New York City. We should kill the judge. We should kill the DA. We should find out their houses. We should target their families. I mean, it was literally endless, you know, drowning in this threat stream. And, you know, you can write it off and say, well, that's just puffery. You know, they're they're kind of trying to top each other. It makes them feel good. But uh, it's all fun and games until, until somebody shows up yeah. and doesn't get the joke. Right. And that's the guy who shows up with the gun at somebody's house. And, you know, that's the guy who comes into Nancy Pelosi's house. Yes. Who, you know, hits her husband on the head with a hammer after describing what he wants to do and why he's willing to wait a couple of days for his wife to show up. I mean, this is words matter. And it's dangerous kind of talk. And it's become our go-to. And that's a problem. Actually, there was a false, these swatting incidents where police are told some violent incident is happening at the home of this. One of these just happened to the judge in the civil case against the Trump businesses here in New York. Swatting incidents are particularly dangerous because they come with a narrative. There's someone here holding hostages. There's gunmen with bombs. There, you know, it's happening now. And you know, one instinct is to say, well, I'm the police. I'm not going to run. I'm going to walk because this could be a fake call and we should really do our due diligence and kind of look around for a while outside and maybe make some calls inside and we'll really vet this thing. Okay, that's terrific in a swatting call. But when the swatting call is not a swatting call, but it's that bank in, you know, Louisville or Nashville or any of the other places, you know, the mall where we've seen the real active shooter. And you know that the average active shooter is shooting for under three minutes where they achieve mm-hmm. that that incredibly awful body count. Can you really afford to kind of wait to gear up and go while you consider whether the call is real? And the answer is the fast police response in these active shooter incidents is what made the difference between five people being shot or 25. So this puts police in a terribly dangerous position. Mm -hmm. You've testified before Congress, and I'm shorting your extraordinary history because you spent six years at the FBI, and I'm going to ask you one thing about that, and then later back for eight, I guess, in the NYPD. But you were very, very strong in your advocacy for additional gun safety laws. And as you point out, you're a gun owner yourself. I think you got into a jam once over a, a weapon that you inadvertently took through. A, yeah, that's right. I became, I became the poster boy for airport security for a minute, yes. But talk to me about that from a law enforcement perspective, about where laws can be strengthened that would have a material impact on gun violence in this country. You know, when I testified for Congress, I said, you know, we thought, well, 
Congress doesn't get it. You know, they're in the pocket of the NRA. But, you know, when they start shooting congressmen, this will change. But then Gabby Giffords was shot and Steve Scalise was shot and nothing happened. Then I thought, all right, well, when they start killing our families when we go to the movies. But then Aurora, Colorado happened and, you know, the state tried to do something, but the federal government was – nothing happened. And then, you know, when they murdered our children in, in Newtown, Connecticut, in kindergarten, in the first grade – and slaughtered babies, literally, um, that was probably going to be the last straw, the moral imperative that would get Congress under the, out from under the cudgel of the gun lobby to actually act maybe something simple like actually bringing back the assault weapons ban we once had. But that didn't happen either. The challenge I gave to Congress is, is this who we are, that we value these rights more than we value our littlest children our families at the movies, our own legislatures, uh, our own legislators. Um, and it caused a big screaming match in the committee. Uh, it certainly didn't cause an answer to come forward. Yeah. But I think we're at a point of inflection here because the NRA is, you know, trying to declare bankruptcy. Crippled, yeah. um, its head just resigned. Um, well, Wayne Lapierre, who ran the thing uh, for years and years and years, had just resigned because of these charges. So, I mean, I think, I think you're going to see – it's possible you're going to see a new group try to build the new NRA, which may be uh, more malleable to not taking everybody's guns away, but coming to a set of solutions that make common sense. You say this is a test of who we are. Most Americans agree with your point of view. It's because of the peculiarities of our system that a minority it's, can— It's not even my point of view. I actually agree with most Americans and right. what they already think. Yeah. But but as a law enforcement veteran, uh, do you believe these laws would make a material difference in terms of saving lives? So, yes, but, you know, when the assault weapons ban went into effect— Yeah, there uh, I think that was the best chance to make a long-term difference. There were like two million assault weapons on the streets. Then I think it's probably multiples of that. Hundred, hundreds of millions. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and that's because when the ban went out, everybody went out and bought three assault weapons. And every time there was discussion about bringing a ban back, everybody went out and bought three more. And you know, there are there are literally um, there are literally more assault weapons in the hands of civilians in America um, than in the hands of the largest armies on the planet Earth. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if we get back from that. But I do know that the simple things like closing the gun show loophole where you can make a personal sale from David to John with no record, mm -hmm. no idea whether, you know, I am mentally ill or a hardened criminal, limiting the capacity of the magazines that are available because, you know, what hunter really needs a 30-round magazine? Mm -hmm. um, these aren't imagined things. Right. Yeah, and it's exacerbated by, as you point out, by social media. And it's become a sort of political cultural emblem now. Uh, you have politicians sending out their Christmas cards with the family holding their their uh, assault weapons and so on. It's, You've uh, got them wearing their, you know, AR-15 pins on their lapels yeah. and a member of Congress introduced a bill to pass a law to name the AR-15 America's gun uh, mm -hmm. because, you know, it has been a key tool through wars we have fought. But it's also been the favorite gun of people who have slaughtered innocents. I'm not sure we need to name it America's gun. Let me just, as we go out, I, you, I mentioned that you spent six years in the FBI in the mid two thousand, in the early two thousands, and you you worked for a director, Bob Mueller, who became well known and in some quarters vilified, and uh, as the uh, special counsel in the uh, investigation of uh, of uh, the Russian connection to the two thousand and sixteen election, and he. Uh, T tell me about Mueller and uh, and what was your reaction to how he was portrayed during that period? Bob Mueller is an American hero. He was in the Marines. He fought in Vietnam. He won two bronze stars. Um, he is literally a hero who... Uh, 
you know, on the battlefield, you know, went through terrible injuries, saved his own people, became a lawyer, you know, worked homicide in Washington, found his way through the Department of Justice to being the FBI director literally eight days before 9-11. Bob Mueller is literally as honest as the day is long. And to kind of see him dragged through the mud, I mean, the most apolitical guy you could have as an FBI director um, was offensive to me because it demonstrated they don't care in, when you get into the dirt of politics. They don't care who you are or what you've paid or how much you've sacrificed or what your real character is. Um, when it comes to the mudslinging, you know, everybody's a target. You must be concerned about the vilification of the FBI now. Well, I am because the FBI, despite what everybody hears every day in social media, is an apolitical organization. Granted, it's made up of human beings, and human beings remain imperfect um, as a group. But, you know, it has one political appointee, and that's the director. And the director is supposed to serve a tenure term specifically, so... To keep him out of politics. Everybody else is a career FBI employee, you know, whether they're that, that analyst, whether they're the deputy director, whether they're um, a special agent. You know, they came to work in the FBI, and... They are trained with, you know, to get to the bottom of the case without fear or favor. And the idea that they are painted with this wide brush now as being this dark political organization that, you know, has agendas and is being controlled by dark forces is not to know the FBI that I worked inside of. I mean, as a group, they're some of the finest people and most dedicated, true patriotic Americans dedicated to their mission you could ever find anywhere. And yeah, I mean, it's an agency. They make mistakes. They have their problems. But well, I'm talking yeah, by yeah. and large. In this vast treasure trove of experiences that you've had, uh, which have you? Wh which one do you value the most? I mean, first of all, journalist versus uh, government official. Uh, and among them, wh what is the thing that you look back on? And now, of course, you're here at CNN. What what what, are, what do you look back on and say, that was the sort of seminal, that was the most important experience of my career? You know, it's, it's interesting because you get pinned down to which was your favorite job. Mm -hmm. You know, the most fun job and interesting and stimulating was LAPD because every day was like being in a movie, especially at night because in, in, in L.A. at night, it was either very beautiful or very ugly. And, you know, as a police official, you got to see it all. Um, as far as meaning goes, you know, learning inside the FBI about the big picture of securing America from crime and terrorism and espionage was a fantastic deep dive into a world that I only understood a part of. At the director of national intelligence, um, as which you director, did after uh, the FBI, you know, that really was the dark side. I mean, that was the world of spies versus spies and gave me a global sense. But when it came down to, you know, the NYPD, that was actually preventing people from getting killed from terrorist attacks. Um, you know, we, present, we prevented coming up on 60 different plots against New York City, some of which were ticking time bomb mm -hmm. plots that were about to happen that we were able to stop, and some of which were long-term plots, you know, that we were able to infiltrate and derail some of which we can't even talk about today. But each one was re rewarding in its own way. And what I'm doing at CNN now, um, which is, you know, when something happens and there's those, you know, confusing, you know, hours in the beginning and, you know, we get we get Andy McCabe, former FBI yeah. deputy director, you know, Josh Campbell, special yes. agent, yeah. um, myself, we get on there and start to kind of say, here's what we see. Here's what our experience tells us. It actually kind of takes it down a notch from mm -hmm. the normal kind of breathless patter of yes. cable news that you see in other places and say, you know, listen to people who have been there. People have been in the room. People have been in the field. And we'll get you through this with the most accurate information we can till, till you know, authorities lay it all out. Well, and as everybody who has listened to this conversation can glean, you also bring a lifetime of 
contacts your Rolodex is What's a, a Rolodex? useful thing. Is a, yeah. Well, we're dating ourselves, aren't we? Yes, we are. Yes, your contacts, your contacts, uh, I guess is what we call them now. I are, still have uh, that Rolodex. Yeah, I, I, I bet you still work it too. Yeah. All right, John Miller, it's great to be with you. I'm so glad you're here because of just what you said. You bring perspective that is really hard to find. Well, David, thank you for spending this time with me. It's been great to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Fender Annenberg. The show is also produced by Saralina Berry, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Steve Lichtai and Haley Thomas. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.